The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So, so last month we started a new thing. We called it Summit Saturdays, where one Saturday a month through the month of September, we are going to be climbing a significant summit in southern Oregon. So last month, April 22nd, we, we jaunted to the top of Roxanne. This coming Saturday, uh, we're going to be climbing Grizzly Peak. And so if anybody's interested, meet me at the trailhead of Grizzly Peak this coming Saturday at 7 a.m. and we can climb a mountain together. But one of the things that I thought was really funny was when Heritage, on our social media, we shared a kind of a post about, hey, come, come climb a mountain with Pastor Paul. And uh, someone commented, is this like an audition to be in a sermon analogy? And I just thought that was a hilarious comment. Angela Adams, thank you. Uh, and the answer to that is yes, absolutely. It is an addition uh, to be in a sermon analogy. Uh, uh, but you know, I think about, the, I've been leading people on, on little backpacking trips and hiking trips for, for many, many years. You know, people from my church and police officers and veterans and just different groups of men and women that I've taken out over the years. And uh, you know, and the truth is, uh, if, if, you, if you've listened to my stories, Angela's very accurate. Uh, Sermon illustrations do emerge often from those trips because very often we take a wrong turn or something bad happens and we're we're forced to overcome an obstacle. And it's just great fodder for preaching. And so it it makes the sermon. And if I can be honest, when I'm leading those trips, I have been known to be a little less than truthful. I've been known to tell someone at mile three who has a a blister on their foot. I've been known to tell them, oh, we're almost there. It's a 17-mile hike. And uh, I've been known to say, you got this. Just around the corner, just up the bend. You know, and they hate me at the end of the trip, but they don't die, and they make it. And so it ends up working out. But those those trips can be so difficult. I'm warning you right now, I'm going to show a picture on the Jumbotron. I don't want you to look if you're squeamish, but we have, I've dealt with brutal injuries. This is just one simple blister I had to deal with a few years ago of one of the guys I was taking backpacking. Okay, so so you can take it off now, Tony. We don't need to see any more of that disgusting things. Okay. Just want to, just, I want you to understand. Was that pretty bad? Oh, man, I got a reaction out of here. It was great. <laughs> Rub some dirt on it. Keep going. You got this, buddy. No big deal. Just a flesh wound. Keep hiking. You know, I've been known to lie. Uh, but, you know, my job as a guide, sincerely, in those moments when the journey is very difficult, because it gets very difficult when you're in the mountains, my job is to keep people on course, It's to keep them moving in the right direction. It's to keep them from going astray or giving up or just outright turning back and going back to the car and saying, I'm done. And sometimes my instruction in those places is very practical. Hey, there's going to be a Y in the trail in about another half mile. We have to go right. Or, hey, tighten the laces of your shoes. They're too loose. You're going to get blisters. Sometimes my instruction is motivational. Hey, you got this. You're one of the toughest people I know. Come on, you can do this. You can overcome this. I've seen you overcome greater things in life. You go. Come on, let's do it. Sometimes my instruction is brutally honest. And in the past, I have literally looked at people and I've said, if we stop, we die. And I wasn't lying. If we stop, we die. We have to keep walking. So my, my instruction is diverse in those long journeys. But ultimately what I'm doing as a guide and as an encourager is I'm reiterating, I'm restating, I'm reaffirming the same message again and again and again, which is a message of perseverance. Keep going. We can't stop. There's something great that awaits. Let's keep hiking. In the midst of the most difficult moments when there is temptation to give up, I I often tell people, listen, in a week, we're going to be out of the mountains. We're going to be sitting at a restaurant in Hamilton, Montana, sharing a plate of nachos 
talking about how awesome this was. And so the pain you feel now is temporary. Or I say to them, you know what? I know it's hard. I know you got a, a bleeding blister on your heel. I know you're cramping or you're vomiting or you're not sure. Or you're afraid of what that sound is. I'll say, listen, here in a few, like, before you know it, we're going to come up over a rise and you're going to see an opening in the trees. And you're going to take a few steps and you're going to see the ground begin to flatten out. And be between the stalks of the trees, you're going to see the, the glistening of the sun off the surface of the lake. You're going to smell those alpine waters. And we're going to be seated at the shoreline of the lake as, as trout rise and you soak your aching feet in that cold water. We're going to get there soon enough. Put that in your mind and let's keep going. And so as I think about the book of Hebrews, this is a book primarily written to tell a people who are on the verge of giving up to persevere. It's a book all about perseverance. And in many different ways, this author is restating, he's reiterating, he's reaffirming the same message again and again. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. When you want to give up, what you want to turn to is nothing compared to him who is everything. Focus your heart and your mind on Jesus. This has been the ongoing argument of the book. For those of you that have been traveling through the book of Hebrews with us since last November, it feels very repetitive, doesn't it? It feels like oftentimes, like, didn't Paul just preach that two weeks ago? It's like, yeah, because the author has got this circular reasoning. He continues to add on his argument, but his message is very basic. Lift your eyes to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't turn away. What are you going to turn to? This is your only hope. Draw near confidently to the throne of grace. Don't give up. It's a repetitive message of a man who knows how dangerous it is to turn to the left or to the right or to go astray or to give up. And then today, I just want to draw your attention. Chapter 9, I want to start with the end in mind. Verse 27 and 28 of our passage today, we're, we're Hebrews 9, 15 through 28 today, the, the rest of chapter 9. I want you, to, I want you to, to look real quick at what we read in verses 27 and 29, <clears throat> or 27 and 28. This is the author painting the destination in the mind of the journeyer, or the traveler, or the hiker. This is the author painting that aspirational vision of where they're headed. And here's what he says. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The author recognizes these are a people who are weary and tired, and there is an eager waiting that exists within their heart as they seek to, to meet God, to encounter him, to see the fulfillment of their, of, their, of their hopeful anticipation. He's painting a picture for them as they continue to journey. And, and so, though there's much being said in our passage today, much of it is a reiteration and a restating of what we've read previously, the new idea that is introduced here is simply this. Christ will appear again to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting. That's what the author is saying here in verse 28. Christ is coming back. He's going to appear again, and there will be a, a, a glorious, fulfilling conclusion to your, to your eager waiting. Stay on course. Don't give up. Don't go astray. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. Keep on going. So, as you look at the first nine or ten verses today, it is the author restating things he, say, he said previously. The author in these first few verses, and I'm going to go through these rather quickly so we can settle in on the last few verses, but I want to, I want to cover them. In, in these first few verses, verses that I'll read with you here in a minute, the author, he, he's talking about how Jesus, or he revisits how Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. 
He talks about Jesus ushering in our inheritance by his death. The author talks about how the earthly articles of worship were copies of these greater things in heaven. He talks about how the sprinkling of blood was necessary to affect the covenants. And then he, he, he begins to talk about, about death in verses 15 through 18. We're going to read these verses right now. I'm going to encourage you right now, just in your mind, pay attention to every time you see the word death in the next few verses. Let's begin in verse 15. Therefore, as the mediator of a new covenant, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16. For where a will is involved, a death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since, he is not, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, do not even the first, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So three times we see the word death in our text. We see it once in verse 15, once in verse 16. We see it once in verse 17. If you're a highlighter or an underliner, you might want to make special note of those repeated words. But look with me a little bit more closely at what we see here in verse 16. He says, where, there, where, where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. There's this language of necessity connected to death. And so here's the first thing I would simply encourage you to write down if you're a note taker. I got four points today. Here's the first thing. We simply see the necessity of death. We see the necessity of death. Uh, more specifically, we see the necessity of death in the inauguration of a covenant. If you look at verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. And so the idea here is that the full benefit of a will uh, does not kick in until a death can be established. And the same thing is being said about covenant. The full benefit of a covenant doesn't kick in until a death can be established. It's the death that that's associated with blood that inaugurates the whole thing. So imagine with me, if you will, there is a single mother. She has a child who's a preschooler, and she is going to school full-time to try to make a future for her and her son. And it's just her. And she's working every spare minute she gets to earn up extra money. And she's trying to provide a meaningful education and social uh, experiences for her, her child. And so she's, she's burning the candle at both ends at all times, sleeping on an average five hours a night, raising her child, struggling to make ends meet, weary, barely able to keep her nose above water financially, on the verge of collapse. There are blisters everywhere in her life, relational blisters, emotional blisters, spiritual blisters, financial blisters. She imagines a day where this will all end, where this eager waiting for something better, something different, an end to it will happen. She imagines in her mind how that day will come, when that day will be. And then one day, she hears a knock at the door. She had an uncle who she loved. He was weird and bizarre. He was a billionaire. She didn't know it. And the knock at the door is a lawyer who is in charge of her uncle's estate. He hands her an envelope. She curiously opens the envelope to find an, uh, a check with several zeros behind it. She had no idea. She is the benefactor of a million-dollar-plus inheritance. And she recognizes what the death of her uncle signifies in that moment, her inheritance. Oh, my goodness, the struggle's going to end. I no longer have to toil day in and day out, struggling to make ends meet. I can let my blisters begin to heal because I have breathing room 
the death of my uncle has inaugurated in the benefits of this will. This is the picture the author gives us. The, this is the metaphor the author gives us for how we're to think about the death of Jesus. It was the death that opened up access to this great inheritance. How much greater is the inheritance that Christ offers? There's a picture here that the author paints for us regarding the new covenant. Again, this is review, but it's, it, it bears us kind of reminding ourselves what the author has taught us up to this point. He tells us in the very beginning of verse 15 that the Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. This has been established, but let's remind ourselves, how is Christ the mediator of a new covenant? Well, first, he revealed it. The whole book of Hebrews begins with this, this, this statement that in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son. It's in and through Christ that a new covenant has been revealed. Christ mediates the new covenant uh, in that he serves as priest. Oh my goodness, have we covered this? Christ is the great high priest. We've been talking about Christ as a priest since chapter 4. Chapter 9, verse 11 tells us Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come. Thirdly, Christ mediates a new covenant by offering himself as sacrifice, the greater sacrifice. Our text last week told us that Christ offered himself without blemish to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Christ mediates a new covenant by revealing it, by serving as priest, by serving as sacrifice. Because of the work of Christ, the full benefits of the new covenant are now made available. And because of his death specifically, because of his death, the believer now enjoys this eternal redemption and an internal inheritance. And so the first thing we see is we see the necessity of death. So then we, 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 we have all this language in the next few verses about blood. Now, obviously, blood is symbolic of the life, and, and blood and death go together. Something dies, and, 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 the, and blood in the action of sacrifice is being used as a, as a symbol of life. Where there is sin, the wages of sin is death. Uh, the, the only way to atone for death is by the blood of something living. This gives us a picture of the cross. This is a picture of the Levitical sacrificial system. But there's this unique language about blood that I think we need to pay attention to. So let's read the next few verses, verses 18 through 22. Pay attention, and if you're an underliner or a highlighter, to the, to the re repetition of the word blood. Beginning in verse 18 again. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood... For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of, of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 21. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tents and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. How many times did you see the word blood? Six times. Once in verse 18, once in verse 19, once in verse 20, once in verse 22, twice, in, once in verse 21, twice in verse 22. And here's the second thing I would encourage you to write down in connection to that. We, we, we see simply in verses 18 through 22 the necessity of blood. We see the necessity of blood. More specifically, we see this, the necessity of blood in the forgiveness of sins. The necessity of blood in the forgiveness of sins and Look at what it says at the very end of verse 22. Without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This, this is a concluding statement here, and it drives home the importance of blood. Listen to what one, one theologian wrote. He said, this is Thomas Schreiner in his commentary. He says, we have already seen that the first covenant was inaugurated and ratified with blood. In other words, death was necessary for the covenant to take effect. Blood was fundamental for the covenant. Virtually everything is cleansed by blood according to the law. 
And here we're told that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And of course, our minds immediately go to Christ and the blood he shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, of which we're going to be taking communion in a little bit. And this cup, this cup of juice, is this incredible reminder of the, of the blood of Christ and its effect upon us, the forgiveness of sins. We learn by looking at the Old Covenant practices that there is this practice once a year, the Day of Atonement, and, and the, the basic message to the people of Israel was that to be forgiven of sin, blood had to be spilt, a death had to occur, blood and death go together, death has to be established, blood has to be shed. We see the necessity of death and we see the necessity of blood, and moving quickly through these because it's repeat. And as we've shared in previous weeks, in Christ, we see the ultimate death and we see the ultimate shedding of blood. It's not the death of an unblemished animal. It's not the blood of a goat or a calf or a bull. As we've seen in the Old Covenant, the author is drawn constantly from the imagery of the Old Covenant and pointing us to Jesus in the New Covenant. But I want us to pay attention to some really interesting words that are used in verse 19. I think that are very intentional by the author here, intended to, to waken up our minds to Christ as the ultimate place of death and blood. Look at verse 19. When he's kind of talking about the Old Covenant, here's what the author says. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. As we were chatting about this as a staff this last week, Pastor Jeremy actually even drew my attention to the fact that these, these words are very, they, they cause our heart to, to, to ping a little bit when you read these words. Why? Well, let's think about the word hyssop. You know, only one other time in the New Testament do we see the word hyssop. It's in John chapter 19. It's at the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus knew that all was about to be finished, so to fulfill the scripture, John tells us, Jesus said, I thirst. John, John 19, 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch. They held it up to the mouth of Christ. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. So the word hyssop, yes, it harkens back to the practices of the priests of the Old Covenant, but it takes us to the very cross of Christ. We see blood and water. There's only one other place in the New Testament where the word blood and water appear in the same verse. You know what verse it is? It's John 1934. It's a day of preparation before the Sabbath. Jesus is hanging between two thieves. They, they want them to die sooner so they can get him off the cross and they can prepare for the Sabbath. And so they break the legs of the guy on the right of Jesus. They break the legs on the guy on the left of Jesus so they can collapse and they'll die quicker. They go to break the legs of Jesus and he's already dead. Because we just read in the previous section, it is finished and he died. So rather than break his legs, they take a spear and they plunge it into the side of Jesus. They pierce his very heart. John 19.34 tells us, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. As we see the words blood and water, we are brought right back to the very cross of Christ, aren't we? The ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate blood, the ultimate death. We see scarlet wool, and there's an argument to be made about the color scarlet and scarlet threads and scarlet ropes and the, and the curtains of the tabernacle. There's an argument to be made about how there's a scarlet thread that's woven through all of Scripture, but more simply... Matthew's gospel tells us at the death of Jesus, chapter 27, verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. I think of the, the scarlet wool, the, the garments of Christ soaked scarlet with his blood. 
as his executioners casted lots to see who received it. We see hyssop and blood and water and scarlet wool. It all points us to Jesus, all of it. Pick up in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves were with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. This again, is, this, is, this is a reiteration of what we've learned in previous sections of this, of this text. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, entered, he, Jesus, has appeared once and for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If you're a highlighter of a, of a verse, take the second half of verse 20, 26, 26b. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That is the gospel in a verse. Underline that. Highlight that. That verse is powerful. And our eyes are now fixed on Jesus. And the third point of our sermon is we see the death and blood of Christ. Or if you want to add a phrase, we see the once-for-all death and blood of Jesus Christ in verses 23 through 26. Again, I know it's all review. It's the author restating the new way that he has previously argued. As the blisters begin to wear through the feet of the original audience, the author is saying, listen, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus. As they struggle with temptations to go astray, to give up, or to flat out turn away, he's affirming the worthiness of Jesus, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. And again, he is saying to them what he has been saying to them, that all the death of the old covenant, all the blood pointing to this ultimate once-for-all death, this ultimate once-for-all blood, he's saying to them, I know you have blisters. I know you're exhausted. I know you want to quit. But fix your eyes on Jesus. See, the once-and-for-all nature of this once-and-for-all sacrifice, every drop of blood Every animal death for the thousand plus years the sacrificial system was in operation, every drop, every animal pointed to this definitive death and this definitive blood, Christ's willing sacrifice of himself. Now, look and see what this accomplished. What did the, the death and blood accomplish? Let's put away sin. He has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin. I mean, since the foundation of the world, sin has, since the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden, sin has plagued humanity. And there has been an eager waiting since, since, since God spoke a curse over the serpent in Genesis 3.15 that one day the head of the serpent would be crushed. There has been an eager waiting in the hearts of humanity and Christ has finally appeared once and for all at the end of the age of sin and death to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, the, the text tells us. The end of the ages has been inaugurated by Christ's sacrificial death. But there's this hope for something more. Even though the end of the age has been inaugurated by Christ's sacrificial death, it still awaits consummation at the return of Christ. This not yet fulfilled reality that we're waiting for even today. So in our text, we see these three things. We see the necessity of death. We see the necessity of blood. We see the once and for all death and blood of Christ. And all of this is a building anticipation of verses 27 and 28. 
This idea that Christ will appear again to bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting. Look with me again at verses 27 and 28. The ministry of Christ is not done. He's coming back, the author tells us, just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Not only do these verses destroy the idea of reincarnation, this Eastern thought that, that there are many lives, you die and are reborn, die and are reborn. It's very clear that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's not the point of the text, but it's a refutation of the idea of reincarnation. But more significantly, the point of, of, of the text here is this real future hope. This, this waiting, this, this eager waiting is going to one day come to a, a, a glorious conclusion. Christ is going to appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So that's the fourth point in my sermon. Simply this. Finally, we see in verses 27 and 28, the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. We see the hope of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Last week, the author in the previous texts, verse 11 through 14, spoke of the first appearing of Jesus. If you look at verse 11, he says, But when Christ appeared... He entered once and for all into the holy place, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is is an author speaking of the first advent, or the first appearing of Christ. And we we said last week as we studied that passage that when Christ appeared, everything changed. The purpose of the first appearing as we studied last Sunday was that Jesus entered a superior sanctuary, securing our eternal redemption. We, We learned that in so doing, Jesus offers a superior sanctification, which purifies the conscience. That was the result of the first appearing of Jesus. But today's passage has his second appearing in view, his return. And the purpose of the second appearing is not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. And the second coming of Christ is all over the scriptures. It's what we as Christians hope for. It's what I hope we pray for. Lord Jesus, come. I read this week that just as the Old Testament is saturated with prophecies concerning the first appearing of Jesus, so both Testaments are filled with references to the second appearing of Christ. One scholar has estimated that there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament, where 17 books give it prominence. Now in the New Testament, of the 260 chapters of the New Testament, there's 318 references to the second appearance of Christ which means an amazing one out of every 30 verses speak of the second coming. 23 of the 27 New Testament books offer this, refer to this great event. For every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first appearance, there are eight which look forward to his second. Did you know that? The second coming is glory. It is glory for the believer. With our blistered feet, our weary legs, it is our hope And he's not coming again to deal with sin. Christ already came to deal with sin. Definitively, that's what his first appearing was all about. He offered once to bear the sins of many. He was offered once, it says in verse 27, to to bear the sins of many. I'm mindful of what Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That was the purpose of his first appearing. That was the purpose of his sacrificial death. We studied last week that his sacrifice brings a pure conscience. 
God will purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. We meditated on that together as a church last week. And so here as we get to verse 28, what the author has been doing is been looking back. Looking back at, at, at the Old Testament, at the Old Covenant. He's been looking back at what Christ has done, and now here in verse 28, he, he switches his perspective, and now he begins to hopefully, hopefully look forward to what Christ is going to do. God has spoken through his Son as we look back, and the book has walked us through this for nine chapters. What has God done through his Son? Well, the author has told us he's superior to angels. He's a, he, brings a, he brings a better message. He's, he's, he's greater than Moses. He, he brings a, a better covenant. He offers a, a superior rest, he's told us. Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's, he offers a superior sacrifice. Uh, he entered a, a greater sanctuary. He offers a better sanctification. Now having completed his work, Jesus is seated in heaven, the text tells us, at the right hand of the majesty on high. But his ministry is not over. Verse 28, and then moving into the rest of the book, there is this forward-leaning aspect to the book of Hebrews, especially when we get to verse 11, when we begin to look at all these great figures of the faith who died without seeing the fulfillment of God's promise, but they look forward to a day when God would fulfill all of his promises. And that's the posture we take today. It's a hopeful posture. It's a posture of anticipation that he is coming back. He will set all things right. We're invited to hope in his future return and his consummating work that he will one day do in Christ. So that means for you and for me, there is an end to our toil. There's a conclusion to our eager waiting. There's a, as a believer, you and I can now look with great hope to the second appearing of Christ. And that deep, the deep longings of your soul that you feel, the eagerness with which you wait, will be perfectly and fully satisfied when he appears a second time. Ah, let's look forward to that, don't you? Watching the awful news of another mass shooting. Eight dead, innocents, shot down in a public square. It's like, how bad can it get? Oh, Lord Jesus, come. Set everything right. And so as we, we are on this journey, and the author just reminds us of this glorious truth for the believer that he is coming back. And with him will be the new heavens and the new earth, the, the kingdom consummated in its fullness. And so we can begin to see through the, through the trunks of the trees the glistening of the lake. We can begin to smell those alpine waters. Begin to hope what tomorrow may bring. And so the question becomes, what are we to do as we wait for a second appearing? What, what are we to do? This is where we find ourselves. Last year we talked through the book of Mark, and we ended up spending a couple days, a couple Sundays in the Olivet Discourse in the 13th chapter of Mark, and in the 13th chapter of Mark, as Jesus is speaking in part about his second coming, he gives us, through, through metaphor, or through parable, an exhortation of what it is we are to do as we wait for his second coming. Mark 13, beginning in verse 32, but concerning that day, Jesus said, or that hour, when I return, Jesus, he says, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. But then he begins his instruction to the believers. Okay, we don't know when he's coming back, but he's coming back. But what are we to do as we wait? Verse 33 of Mark's 13th chapter. Be on guard, he says. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each 
with his work. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, disciple, stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, Jesus said, I say to all, stay awake. So what are we to do as we await the second coming of Christ? We are to work. We're to do the work he's given us to do. And we're to stay awake as we look eagerly for his return. We're to put our hand to the work that the master has given us and we're to stay awake lest we slumber and grow dull. Now, as you study scripture more broadly, you recognize and you know that there are two groups of people on that final day. There are those who have trusted in Christ alone before God, and there are those who trusted in something or someone other than Jesus. And there's going to be judgment on that day. One group will be judged with God's wrath, and one group will receive salvation that they've been eagerly waiting for. I like how A.W. Pink puts it. He says, the first time Christ came, he came to slay sin in men. The second time, he will come to slay men in sin. But for those of us who have trusted Christ, for those of us that have trusted the atoning work of Jesus, to those for whom Christ has died, to those for whom death has been defeated in the sacrifice of Christ, for you and me, for those of us that are believers in Jesus, he will not be dealing with sin when he returns. Is that not a comforting thought? I I don't know about you, I was telling a story with Stasis last week. I, there's a guy I, I, I know of on the internet who's sort of a popular personality. I don't necessarily care for him too much, but a video was leaked of him in one of his least glorious moments. He was in an argument with his wife. There was a Nest camera on their back porch, and he was being an absolute tyrant to his wife, showing no concern for her, just being rude and disrespectful. And somehow that video got leaked, and it paints a picture that you've never seen of him in his public persona, and it's, and it's damning. And I watched that video, and I thought, oh, I don't like this guy at all. This guy's a jerk. I can't believe he talked to his wife like that. And then I thought for a second. If there was a Nest camera catching every one of my ugliest moments, man. And then I realized there is. Not just my outward actions. God knows the inward thoughts of my heart. And so what that does in me, maybe it's my family of origin, maybe it's the shame paradigm I approach. It just creates shame in me. If I'm honest, embarrassment. Why am, I be- why am I not better? Why haven't I figured out my anger issues? Like, why do I still belong to the people I love? Like, I just start dealing with the, just feeling shame. And then I think about approaching Jesus at his second coming, and it's not hopeful for me if I'm honest. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I can't believe that I've not overcome certain sin struggles in my life. Maybe you don't feel like that. I, I do. But then I'm reminded, Paul, it's not about what you, it's about him. He's already dealt with sin, past, present, and future. I'm trusting in his work, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. When he comes a second time, he's not coming to deal with sin. In fact, this eager waiting that I feel in my body to have all things set right, that's what he's coming back to fulfill. Living on this side of heaven is difficult. One of the greatest honors of my life isn't, to, isn't preaching, honestly. One of my greatest honors of life is when I get to sit across from the men and women of my church and we get to talk honestly about life and about sins and about confession and repentance and godliness and discipleship and failures and successes and hopes and dreams. To be invited into people's lives is such a great honor. And I know, because I've been sitting with people for 23 years, and I know it happens when I look in the mirror, 
this life is difficult. We daily struggle with sin. We daily confront sin. We deal with our own wretchedness, and it's daunting. But we know that Jesus came to defeat sin and death. For those of us that are believers, we've trusted in Christ, the sufficiency of his sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. We know that the blood of Christ was spilt on our behalf. It purifies our conscience so that we can serve a living God. This is the truth. Now, I've had so many pastoral conversations over the years, but especially after last week, we talked about the purifying work of Christ on our conscience last week. That kicked up some dust in some people's lives. I've had a couple conversations this week where people say, I know that Jesus gives me his righteousness, and I know that my sanctification is based on his work and his righteousness given to me, and I know that the pure conscience that I get through Christ is based on the purity of Christ and not my purity. I know that, Paul, and I know that Christ came to put away sin. I know that. And I know that his blood is sufficient to atone for sins, past, present, and future. And yet as I have these conversations, they're just tormented by their sin. Just so tired of sinning. So tired of falling back into the same habitual patterns. I had one brother this week said, am I that dog returning to its vomit that Peter talks about in Second Peter? I just think this is the lived experience for the believer on this side of glory. We live with the reality of sin. And let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, battle with a sin. Choose to put sin to death. Choose to trust Christ. Choose to confess and repent. And I know that oftentimes the Christian life is two steps forward and one step back. Listen to the words of our author today. Christ will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Look to Christ and his sufficiency. Stay in the fight and know that it is the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you that makes you pure, that washes away sin. It's the sufficiency of Christ, not the self-will of the man or the woman. Stay in the fight. Keep confessing your sin to God and others. Keep killing sin day after day. As, as uh, I think it's Paul David Tripp talks about the nowism of the gospel. The gospel isn't just what saved you. It's what sanctifies you every day. It's the gospel that puts the sin to death every day in your life. Go to Christ. Go to the gospel. Pray the gospel. Speak the gospel. Preach the gospel over your life every day. Keep pursuing godliness. Never stop trusting him along the way. Focus on him and not your failures. And unlike me, who lies to those I lead, he'll never lie to you. His words are trustworthy and true. So may we together, as the body of Christ, eagerly look forward to the day that you will see the sinless Son of God, and all of it will be made made right. I know. The blisters hurt. Your legs are weary. Your eager waiting is wearying. I get it. But can you smell the water? Can you see the glistening of the sun through the trunks of the trees? Envision the day that you will dip your weary feet in the cool waters of the new creation. Christ will appear again and bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting. As we consider the second coming of Christ, it reminds me of the decay that we see all around us. And we're reminded that one day it will be remade. All of creation is groaning, waiting for that day. But Christ will return. We will be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Can I confess another sin? As long as I'm just bearing all my soul up here today. 
I was having uh, lunch with a brother this week, and I was able just to kind of to share with him some of my just basic frustrations. It wasn't necessarily a conversation where I was, I was just being honest with a friend. And if I can confess, I watch the news, and I see the world, and I have tremendous fear for the world my children and my grandson is growing up in. I see 101 reasons every night to fret. As I mentioned earlier, another mass shooting. I see disturbing trends concerning gender and sexuality. I see increasing polarization within politics. I see an unstable global economy. I see wars and rumors of wars. I see identity politics designed to divide, and that's exactly what they're doing, is dividing Americans and people on, on planet Earth against one another. I could go on and on and on, as we all could. And if I'm honest, here's my confession, I want to rage. I want to rage. And I actually have a pulpit where I could rage if I wanted to. And I've actually been encouraged by people at Heritage to rage from the pulpit, Paul. Scream about how broken our world is. And I want to go scorched earth. In my, in my humanity, the heart of this man, who, who, who feels it's my duty to protect and to lead and to fight for righteousness, I want to go scorched earth. I want to fight a culture war because the way I see our culture trending infuriates me. I have a fantasy, in fact. I have a fantasy, if I'm honest, of just blasting people. I have, I have like 3,500 Facebook friends because I've been involved in churches and work, and, and they, they represent the world. Believers, unbelievers, every, every person you can imagine. And I see the stuff people talk about, and I just have this fantasy of just saying, you know what, I'm done holding back. I'm going to blast everybody with my, my fury. I want to blast everyone, all those who stand for the ideology I, I think is anti-God. I want to blast everybody for all those people who I think stand for ideologies that are anti-gospel. I want to go to war with the culture. And yet, if I'm honest, when I let this fantasy play out and I look inward, I realize my words are weapons. My motivation is wrath. My heart is filled with hate. And my aim is destruction. I'm reminded of the words of Jesus. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work. And he commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. I'm reminded I am to do a work that Christ has given me. I'm commanded to stay awake and look for his glorious return. And so what is the work that Jesus has given me as his disciple? It's not real complicated, is it? Love God. Follow my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love my neighbor as myself. Proclaim the gospel to all nations. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize people into the family of God. And teach these disciples to, to obey the very words of Jesus. Like those words that Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm thinking of my rage. And then the words of Jesus wash over me. You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For you, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have, Paul? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I just feel deep conviction. 
it would feel good for about 15 minutes to turn scorched earth. It would feel really good to make everybody who disagrees with my worldview feel small. For about 15 minutes, it would feel good. When I keep my eyes on him, when I eagerly wait for the salvation that he will bring at his second coming, when I trust that a day is coming that he will set all things right. When this is the, when this is the posture of my heart, that, that there's going to be a day Christ makes all things new, I'm more inclined to hyper-focus on him and less inclined to hyper-focus on our broken culture. I'm more inclined to love my neighbor and less inclined to engage in a culture war that wins the argument but hardens the heart. I'm more inclined to trust in the lordship of Christ and less inclined to put trust in a politician or a public figure. When I keep my eyes on Jesus, when I eagerly hope for his second coming, I am more inclined to build the kingdom of Christ and less inclined to putting my hand to building the kingdom of man. Christ will appear again. He'll bring salvation to those who are eagerly waiting. We see the necessity of death. We see the necessity of blood. We see the death and blood of Christ, and we have this beautiful and glorious hope of the second coming of Christ. And I think it's wonderful that today is a communion Sunday. I'm reminded of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He's sitting with his disciples in the upper room. Chapter 22 of Luke's gospel tells us that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles, they reclined at table. And Jesus said to his apostles, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then he says these words, For I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. There's this hopeful anticipation connected to the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul gives us instructions in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after, cup, after supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. When we come to the table, as we will here in a few moments, when we come to the table, we are proclaiming a past event, in part. We're proclaiming the death of Christ, and in so doing, we're proclaiming that our trust, we're, when we proclaim this past event, when, when we proclaim this death of Jesus, we are also proclaiming our trust in that event. Jesus said, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The death of Jesus was the sacrifice that provides the means of salvation. The death and shed blood of Jesus is more than a historical event, as we all know. It's the very center of the gospel. And our text today reminds us that this new covenant takes effect only at death, which means that the institution of the new covenant actually took place at the time of Christ's death. Our text also reminds us today that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so as we take the cup today, and as we take the bread into our hands, as we lift the cup to our lips, we're remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. We're remembering his self-giving love that compelled him to go to the cross on your behalf and on my behalf, where he absorbed the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. His body was beaten and broken. His life was offered as the once and for all sacrifice that forever satisfies the justice of God. And so in part, when we come to the table, we are proclaiming the death of Christ. But also, when we come to the table, we're proclaiming a future event, aren't we? 
For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper not only looks backward, it also looks forward. Holy Communion proclaims a future event as well as a past event. Just as the Lord's Supper reminds us of Christ's first appearance, it also points forward in hopeful anticipation of his second appearance. And as servants of our Lord, we, we are to faithfully carry out the work he has given us. We're to look with great hope for the return of Christ. Let's do that today. Each time we take the bread and the cup, our hearts and our minds are reminded of our eager waiting that it one day will come to a glorious and beautiful and fulfilling end. When we will look at him, as Revelation says, we'll see him coming with clouds and every eye will see him. First Thessalonians tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with a voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. See, communion is this sacred ordinance. It was commanded by Jesus to be observed by the church, by us today. It's what we're doing today. It's, it's something he's commanded us to do between his first and his second appearing. It's a statement of faith. It's a declaration of hope. It's an act of worship. And so I encourage you this morning as I'm closing prayer is to take the next few moments between songs to still your heart, to prepare your heart and mind for communion as the band comes up. And if you haven't grabbed your elements already, we have some right up here if you need to grab them. Let me pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you've given us this morning as an opportunity to, to gather in this place and to sit under the authority of your word and, and to fix our hearts and minds on this, God, this glorious hope that we have as believers. That Jesus, you're coming back. And all of the eager waiting will one day be fully satisfied. You're coming back not to deal with sin because you already dealt with our sin. And so God, as we, as we prepare our hearts and minds for the elements, for the bread and for the, and for the cup, God, I pray that, that as our hearts and minds uh, f- focus on your broken body and your shed blood, as we focus on the fullness of the gospel, God, that by your Holy Spirit right now in this moment, God, you would bring just, just clarity of thought. God, that you would bring to our remembrance the things in our life that we need to confess unto you. God, I pray that none of us would take this cup in an unworthy manner this morning. God, I pray that, that right now as we examine our hearts and prepare our minds for this, this, this supper, God, I ask that you would meet us in this place and, and that, God, you would continue that sanctifying work you have done in us. God, if there is any of us in this room who've never come to a place of, of final and ultimate trust in you, God, I pray that right now by your Holy Spirit, God, you would, you would draw us near to you God, that there would be an honest confession of faith, that that lips would declare that Christ, you are the Son of God, and that you've been raised from the dead. And I pray, God, that that you draw us near to you this morning, and that you would be glorified in our worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name.